growth pains. Hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of Growth Pains. I'm your host, Ignacio Gallegos, also known as Nacho. With my guest today, we'll be talking about topics such as how to approach work when you lack discipline, over-questioning yourself creatively, communicating the value of brand marketing to management, and setting the right expectations. My guest today is Wes Keo. She's a marketing strategy and product launch expert, was the co-creator and executive director of Seth Godin's Alt-MBA, and she now works full-time as a consultant helping B2C brands launch new products. You've helped over 150 product launches in the last years, and you also have one of the best new blogs I've come across in the in the past years. I, I, I've learned a lot from it, so welcome, Wes. Nice to have you. Great to be here, Nacho. Cool. Let's get straight to it, right? Like, Let's start with the true and false, try to like uh, get things warmed up for the conversation. Um, let me start with the first true or false. You can just know half ways on this one, huh? You have to tell me whether you lean one way or the other. So okay. <laughs> most successful companies have their marketing fundamentals figured out from reliable data to a solid strategy, true or false? Huh. Ooh, I have to say one or the other. Uh, I'll say yes. You think so? Yeah. So most of the companies that, that what I think the, the key there is successful, right? Like when I say successful or so on, but the companies that yeah. reach out to you to, to work together or whatnot, is this what you see? Or you also see a lot of hot messes going around? I think having your, your fundamentals down doesn't mean that you are not also a hot mess. So I think those, those coexist uh -huh. at the same, um, you know, it's, it's not mutually exclusive. Okay. So I think to be successful, you have to have some of your fundamentals in a good place. Your value prop has to make sense for your customer. They have to value your solution. They have to value their problem enough to want to pay for a solution. So all those fundamentals, that, that's what I consider fundamentals. Um, and then in terms of other things being a hot mess, of course, you know, yeah. data that's not clean, attribution. I've never encountered a company that had really clean attribution with tracking, you know, did this person come from social or did they come from this um, yeah. blog post or did they come from word of mouth? It's really hard to track um, attribution in a really clean way, but directionally they're going, you're going in the right direction. So I think there's a difference between hard science versus directional. And uh, if you have your fundamentals right, you're probably going in the right general direction. All right. Good answer. Okay. Next one. Companies tend to listen more to consultants than their own people. True or false? I would say true if you are a company that likes hiring consultants. There are some companies that don't and they like working with in-house people, full-time people only. But if you are the kind of company that values a consultant, then the reason that you're bringing them on in the first place is wanting an external perspective, wanting a fresh pair of eyes. And a lot of times, the consultant can say hard truths to you yeah. that are harder to hear from your own employees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the consultant is like a third party that can break discussions, right? Uh, without, because at the end of the day, it's like me giving my opinion with another person and you don't find like common grounds, then somebody else can come in with another point of view and kind of break those discussions. And I think in that way, a lot of companies use consultants, um, in a similar way, right? It's not that they lack the talent in-house. For sure. Consultants also bring deniability, which is huge because yeah. if something doesn't work, it's nice for senior leadership to be able to say, well, 
McKinsey told us to do this or yeah. this marketing consultant told us to do that. It's not our fault. We couldn't have known better. They were the most expert in this field. So that deniability piece is also something that companies get when they work with consultants. Cool. Super interesting. Okay. About um, 80% of the marketing content that you can find out there, it's useless recipes of whatever, what somebody else has done before. Is this true or false? True. Ah, okay. Okay, I thought you were going to go uh, false on that one. I, I thought you were really? going to be... A, and that, well, it depends, right? <laughs> like it's in, in a way, I, I know um, I, I really value your content, for example, but I, I think the same way. I also think it's true, right? But um, it's, um, I find, yeah, when you put a, a large percentage on that notion, I find that a lot of people are like, yeah, maybe not 80%, right? Maybe like a little bit. I, I, I would go even a little higher, right? From my own perception. How do you feel about it? I agree. It? Yeah, yeah, I think that um, most of the content that you find online is very basic. It's more geared towards beginners for most topics than for more intermediate or advanced. Yeah. And if you're a more advanced practitioner, it's hard to find quality, thoughtful, nuanced content that talks about the different levers at play and situational factors and how to weigh different trade-offs. All those things are, are pretty nuanced. They're not something that you can just hammer out in an SEO-filled 500-word blog post. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, those tend to be the ones that, that you find when you search on, you know, any topics. So really digging through to see who are people that are worth following, um, where can you get good sources of content? How can you extrapolate a nugget so that you apply it for yourself? Um, I think that's that's where uh, the skill is. Whereas if you just if you just do a plain search, all the stuff that comes up, the first ten pages are all just going to be people who gamed SEO to be able yeah. to rank high, and it's not necessarily good stuff that you should be following. To the searches, to the searcher's own fault as well, right? Because we search in a lazy way, right? We search like the five things I should be doing to be okay with my boss, right? Or like this, like we search in such a way that we allow you know, the SEO uh, players to, 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 to get away with it, right? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem because if you knew what to search for, if you knew the specific terms, you would probably be further along in solving your problem anyway. Right. It's because you don't really know the specific terms and the nuances yet that you're solving in a broad way. And that's why usually after you Google for a bit, and there is a skill to Googling and, and digging deeper to find what you need, um, you then find out, oh, that's right. The, the topic that I'm looking for is actually called blank. It's called psychological safety, right? Not just like how to get along with your boss. Like that might be super broad. And then as you go deeper and deeper, um, you might look up how to manage up or how to have co hard conversations with people um, with more power than you. Yeah. So as you search, you're getting more and more detailed. And then that lets you... Um, search for, for better content that's more relevant to you. All right, and on that same note, and to wrap up the true or false, like marketers would be much better off if they spend less time consuming content and more time doing the work. True or false? True. <laughs> I wanted to get the 
uh, an active content creator opinion on that one because in a way, yeah, but, but it's true. It's, I mean, we, we spend so much time reading the next book and we spend so much time saying, hey, okay, yeah, yeah, I need to learn more about this. I need to learn more about the other. And then you realize that it's been a year that you haven't really done any of that stuff that you just read about because you've been obsessed with just reading, watching or listening to more of it. Do you feel that's the case with most people you, um, you get to talk to? Definitely. I have what I call the learn-do cycle. So right. before, I used to approach learning a new topic as learn, 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 do. So it's, it's a linear, right, where it's a bunch of learning and then doing. And now I, I approach a new topic by doing learn, do, learn, do, learn, do. So it's a cycle where you learn something and you try to put it into action as soon as possible because there's a huge gap between theory and strategy yeah. and yeah. practice in reality on the ground as an operator. A lot of things that sound like they would work and sound like a great solution, the minute you try it, you realize that there were constraints that you didn't think about that don't actually work for your situation or you you aren't able to execute the way that you thought you could. So all kinds of problems pop up and the sooner that you put your idea into action, the sooner that you can start to see what those challenges might be and then you can iterate and tweak and then go back to learning to solve those specific problems and then repeat with trying it out yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely agree on that one. Let's get over to the pains, right? So the first thing I ask every guest in this podcast is the one thing that you are really, really bad at, no humble bragging allowed, no too perfectionist, none of that stuff. What is something that Westkayo is really bad at? I think there are some people who are good at prioritizing the end goal, the, the end of the journey and and putting that above all else. And they can slog through a lot of discomfort and horrible things just to get there. Yeah. That person is not me. Oh God, guilty. And yeah, so I I don't wanna go on a journey unless, I don't, I don't wanna reach the final destination unless the journey is also worth it. So yeah. it's very hard for me to put up with people that I don't like working with, um, projects that feel like a drain, and uh, you know, feeling unappreciated, you know, all these, all these, um, these struggles that we often feel when we really want this end goal and we're willing to do anything to get it. So, um, I think it's a great strength to be able to do that. There's a lot of people who can put up with a lot of, of bullshit to be able to get to where they want to go. Um, but for me, I just realized that that it ends up draining more for me than than it um, than it gives, and yeah. I'd rather pick a destination where the journey is also going to be worthwhile and end up doing that instead. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely feel the, right, the same way, right? I think it's, um, we have a, a lot of gurus out there telling us about this, right? Like you have to appreciate the journey, not the only end point. And, and that's something that goes on like social media taglines quite frequently. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that most people, when they see, you know, some sort of a, some golden pot at the end of the at the end of the rainbow will just put up with with a lot to to get to there right and I, I agree with you I also struggle with that one I think it's a really interesting one so we we also discussed a little bit over email some of your other pains right and one of the ones that really caught my eye was lacking discipline I think we're bombarded these days, right, by content about habits that we should have to be successful from Bill Gates reading a bazillion books per minute and, you know, how to wake up at 4 a.m. and taking cold showers, meditating and going for a 5K jog before you get anything done. But you don't do a lot of those, do you? 
no, I don't do any of those. And, <laughs> and even hearing you say them makes me so glad that I don't do them. Absolutely. I agree. So this is, this is particularly surprising for me because you put out a lot of content, right? And from, from, a, from somebody who's reading your content, you look very disciplined. Right, it looks like you actually take a very disciplined approach. There's always something on your Twitter feed. There's always something on LinkedIn. You're always splitting whatever you put in your blog into smaller snippets. Right, it it seems really disciplined from outside. Right, so what's the explanation for this? Why why do you still see yourself as like non-disciplined? Yeah, I I hope that my story can be an example for everyone who doesn't wake up at 4 a.m. doesn't drink a green smoothie doesn't um, spend you know, every morning working on their side project. So I, I don't consider myself particularly disciplined um, and I don't necessarily have habits that I do every single day. I think those are really popular in um, you know, advice culture right now that, that you have yeah. to have these great habits. Um, for me, I, I tend to have work spurts of inspiration and times when I go into deep work to churn out a lot of productive work. And then I like being really, really lazy for stretches of time where I don't do anything and I relax and I do what I want to do, but I'm definitely not working. There are ideas percolating in my brain and marinating in my subconscious, but I'm not, I, I don't have a set schedule where I have quarterly goals and then weekly goals and then a day-to-day breakdown of from eight to nine, I'm doing this, nine to 10.30, I'm doing this, 10.30, 10.45 is a break. It's My schedule is not calendar, calendared in that way. And I still get a lot done because I rely on other things besides discipline. So uh-huh. I think that's the biggest key here is that it's not, you know, what are you bad at? Okay. it's It's just that it's the, the real skill is how do you design a life and a career where you can be bad at the things that you're bad at, but still be decently successful and achieve the goals that you want to achieve. So I know that I'm not disciplined. I know that I don't work on a regular schedule that is rewarded by, you know, and, and praised by society. I'm also a night owl. So I work super weird hours. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I know that is a constraint. And then I think a lot about how do I design a life and career where those things don't matter and I can still get things done. Okay. So, and how's, how's the guilt level though? Because I, one of the things that happens, like I, I also really, really enjoy that lazy time, right? Like I, I really just enjoy <laughs> like being, I'm being binge watching Seinfeld through this entire pandemic. Like there's like, it's going to end or something, but um, there's quite some guilt there as well. Like I, I well, I'm, I'm on my late thirties, right? So I, I've gotten used to like dealing with my own, my own uh, things uh, a bit more, but there's still a little bit of like, ah, oh, I could be doing something more productive, right? And if you happen to be at that lazy time and you pick up your phone and just open Twitter and you check out how somebody's like, hey, here I am, like just hustling or whatever. And you're like, oh man, and I'm just watching Seinfeld doing nothing. Uh, what's your guilt level? How do you cope with that? Is it non-existent or you just, it's there, but you've learned to deal with it? A couple of years ago, I made a New Year's resolution to worry less and to stop blaming myself so much. I'm definitely with you in terms of being, uh, in, in terms of self-flagellation. Yeah. Really beating myself up 
oh, yeah. for um, things that I feel like I should be doing, um, things I could be doing more of, things I could have done differently. So I think this goes hand in hand with being self-reflective. I find that people who are self-reflective, you know, it's, it's usually a strength, but if you take any strength too far on the other side, then it also becomes um, a weakness. And part of me being self-reflective is that I do tend to overanalyze or blame myself or feel a lot of guilt and shame about what I should be doing, what I could have done differently. So I made a, a conscious decision that my New Year's resolution for the entire year was to just reduce that, like not not do it completely because I don't know if that's possible given yeah. certain personality types, but to turn the volume down consciously. And that's been great. Okay. So when I'm relaxing, when I'm binging Netflix or doing something else, when I'm taking a walk, um, I consciously try not to think about what else I could be doing because I know that a sprint is coming up where I am about to go into a couple hours of deep work where I might produce five times more than someone who's just casually working the entire day. So acknowledging that my working style is different. You can work eight eight hours pretty evenly, or you can work two to three hours in really intense spurts and relax the rest of the hours. So I tend to be the latter and it doesn't always look like, you know, that split, but it usually is something where if I'm relaxing, I know that there's a work sprint coming up. So I don't feel guilty about relaxing, knowing that um, I'm soon about to go into one of those sprints. Okay, what's interesting is you also describe yourself as like a, nat- a natural sharer, right? So you're unlikely to go like Gary Vee mode and streaming from the airport that you're about to go in your next meeting, kind of like random thoughts kind of thing. So what's your system to overcome this? Because you put out stuff really frequently, right? And and, and uh, it's and what what you know captivates me the most is this. It's actually it's always it's always good stuff, right? Like you manage to there's not a lot of those like useless tweets in there. There's not a lot of like that thing that's like, yeah, I could have lived without this one, right? Like most of it, it's somehow insightful. So how somebody that's not prone to sharing, which I can definitely count myself in that bucket, finds, you know, that courage, let's say, or like at least the energy to like go through that. This is definitely something that I have thought a lot about and finally came up with a system for. So I'm really excited to share this with anyone who's listening, who is also a non-sharer. Taking a step back though, um, with why sharing is important in today's culture, um, the internet rewards people who share readily. So sharing your process, sharing your progress, sharing your ideas, your insights, your assertions, your predictions, the internet rewards people who share this because that's how we all get to know who you are as a person and, and your thought process, how you think, how you prioritize, how you make decisions. So it became a very real concern for me that, you know, if I'm not a natural sharer, how are people going to understand my thought process and my assertions and, and these ideas that I find very valuable that I think other people should know? Mm-hmm. So I, I did some deeper digging into, well, what about the process of sharing causes stress and anxiety for me. And if anyone has ever sent a MailChimp email, when you hit publish, there's this, the, the famous sweaty finger <laughs> where it's like this quivering finger shaking and about to hit publish. And that pretty much sums up what I feel when I have to hit publish on yeah. a newsletter, on a tweet, on a LinkedIn post. So I realized that it was that moment of, you know, I, I think this idea is smart. I spent, um, 
a decent amount of time crafting it. I think this is going to be useful for other people. But right when I'm about to hit publish, that's when a lot of doubts come in about, you know, are people going to criticize this? Should I add caveats? Should I add a disclaimer? Because anything that you say, you can think of someone who might disagree with it or um, point out an edge case where whatever you're saying doesn't apply. And that really bothers me because I know I've already thought of those. So if someone then comments, it's like, yes, I thought of that. How annoying that you mentioned it, right? So, so how do you prevent that? And for me, I realized that, that queuing up content, writing it and decoupling the process of writing from publishing was the key for me. So you can write and then you can publish and you can decouple those two things. Right. So for me, that looks like writing content in a batch, scheduling it using a tool like Buffer, and then knowing that that content is going to flow out so that my audience is constantly hearing what's on my mind without the crippling anxiety on my end that's preventing me from being able to share those things. So right. scheduling and, and really decoupling uh, the sharing process from the writing, the insights, the creativity, not expecting yourself to do both at once was really game changing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, well, nowadays it feels like a lot of people have too much time to like bash uh, other people's content, right? So uh, it feels like the cancel culture is out there and you really got to be like super extra careful in, in everything you put out there. But what's interesting is that some of the content you put out like uh, or anybody puts out that you pour your heart into often gets very little traction. Right. So sometimes you put that piece out or that post out that you thought like, wow, I'm really going to kill it with this one. And it doesn't really do anything right for a lot of people. That's one of the main reasons why they even give up. Right. Like they try four or five times or they had a few successful things they put out. And then there's a bunch of things that nobody seems to care about. Right. Seems because also, you know, I barely give a like to anything and I read a lot of stuff that I like. It's just not, I'm not a giving it a like person, right? So it's also what you can measure. Like sometimes I don't comment or like things that I think are really interesting. How do you cope um, with that frustration, right? When you feel like, wow, that was one of my greatest sins and it was the one that got four likes and then you had another one that went all over the place that you thought it was way less interesting or you spent less time in to keep consistent and not getting, you know, bumped out by it. Yeah, I think I think every creator can can empathize with this, where you put a lot of work into all of your creations, and some of them end up performing way better than you expect, and some don't. And it's really tough because um, in times like that, I know intellectually that there are all kinds of reasons why audiences might like or share or react to something more than something else. Yeah. And a lot of times, that has nothing to do with the quality of the insight of what it is that you're doing. It's situational factors. And it's also um, human psychology that there's some things that we like, but we don't necessarily hit the like button. I've noticed that with myself too, that there's some things that I save in my swipe file or I save you know, within Facebook, but I don't necessarily share it, don't necessarily like it. So as a creator, I know all those things because as a consumer, I behave in those ways myself, but it's still hard to internalize that and understand it from an emotional level that um, that the the amount of investment that you put into creating this this piece, whether it's a podcast episode or uh, um, an article or a video or whatever, um, that that you know there was some mismatch somewhere yeah. along the way where people didn't necessarily um, react as well to it. So um, yeah, in times like that, I, I definitely think about 
should I have written a different headline? I'll usually come up with three to five to seven different headlines for every article that I'm writing. Same with a subtitle. Should I have swapped the subtitle and the header and the title? Um, should I have started with a different <laughs> beginning sentence, a different beginning paragraph? Should yeah. I have restructured the composition of the post so that the argument flowed differently? Should I have used different examples? So, and maybe it's not even the article itself. It might be um, the tweet or the LinkedIn post that I did along with it. Should I have phrased it differently? Should I have been longer, shorter of a post that then linked to it? Should I have shared a different image? So it's really all these micro hundreds of creative decisions that went into this thing. When it, when it goes well and people, it takes off, people like it, you don't really think about it. You just think, ah, yes, that was great. People loved it, of course. But it's when, when people don't react as well to it that, that you then realize that there were hundreds of creative decisions and it would have been impossible to A-B test all these different ones to see how people would have reacted differently. And I think at a certain point, you just have to acknowledge, and mm -hmm. I'm still working on this, that, um, that there's factors out of your control and to give yourself more chances at that. Don't just do it once and just think, oh, it fell flat. I guess people didn't like this idea. Really thinking about, okay, what if I shared it a different way? What if I shared it tomorrow or next week? What if I changed things up a little bit? If you really believe in that idea, you should give it a couple more chances to be exposed to the world before you just make the conclusion too early that, oh, people just didn't like that idea. Yeah, but you're also left to the mercy of the algorithms, right? Like um, there is a, there is sometimes people just don't even see it, right? Like sometimes some content just really get pushed up by reasons that, you know, it's hard to understand. For everybody who's watching this in YouTube, I apologize for the sun situation, but if you've lived in the Netherlands, the sun is completely unpredictable. Uh, it was gloomy the entire day and now it's like the sun is on my face, but don't worry about it. it. It will be fine for most of you listening. But coming back to that, I think there's another pain that you mentioned that really resonated with me. That was um, the over questioning yourself creatively, right? Because you mentioned that some of the things that you put out have taken years to put out, right? When I do this or when I started doing this, this is a clear example. Um, I kind of like, like what I'm doing with this. And then two hours later, I just hate it. And then I go in that roller coaster episode after episode, right? Until somebody just sends me a message and goes like, hey man, I loved it. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like that, that that's great, right? And that gives me like the fuel for like the next episode. And from there into the next comment, I'm just thinking it's like pure crap, right? Or I just go up and down until I get like a little notch and I'm like, okay, that's nice. Um, you mentioned, as, as I said before, that some of these uh, pieces took years for you. So what's your rule of thumb here? How do you decide when something is good enough to see the light of day? or when something should stay in your drafts folder for longer? And how do you manage to not just get caught in never publishing it and just, you know, getting too lost in self-doubt that it just never sees the light of day when it could have been good? At any given time, I have, I want to say 30 or so different drafts of articles for my newsletter. And they range from two sentences to two to three pages, pretty much done, 90% ready. And I like giving myself enough time in between initially having the idea to writing it, to editing, and then editing again and editing it again, and then publishing. Yeah. So I find that between writing and editing, that giving myself time to forget about the idea and forget about the article so that I can come back to it with fresh eyes as if I were reading it for the first time, that gives me 
more confidence about judging it objectively. If I'm in the moment writing it, I'm, I'm constantly feeling, um, that self-doubt and that, um, that, that terrible feeling of, oh, this is, this sucks. This whole thing sucks. Like, how can I possibly explain this idea in a way that it gives the idea the credit it deserves so that people have a, a fighting chance of really understanding it? I don't feel like I'm doing it justice, yeah. right? Like as I'm writing, a lot of times I feel that way. Um, so putting some time, building that into my schedule. That's why I write so many drafts that are all in my draft folder because every week I look through those drafts and I think about what what is calling out to me. What do I feel strongly about that I feel like is ready for the public's eyes. Mm-hmm. And then I'll pick that and then I'll usually edit it some more to clean it up and polish it up. Um, but for me, I, I really need to feel like I can stand behind an idea and really believe in it before I publish it. I feel like there's a, a moral authority, uh, a moral responsibility as a creator that if you're going to be sharing something, there's a, a posture of advocacy that you are advocating for this idea. You are hoping to convince other people to believe in this or to do it a certain way or to see things differently. So I don't take that lightly. I don't want to just publish something that I half think is true, but I'm not really sure about. I want to really understand the idea. And it's not necessarily that the idea that the idea is objectively, factually the truth. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is that it's something that I personally believe in and believe will improve people's lives if they do it a certain way. So I need to have that conviction before I publish. And so a lot of times I'll have an idea that I think is interesting and, and I'll type it into, into a Twitter draft yeah. uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll save it as a draft because I want to think about it more to really believe if it's true. So the brand versus performance marketing spectrum, that's a great example of this. Mm-hmm. So the brand versus performing performance marketing spectrum is the idea that, um, they, that brand marketing prioritizes long-term brand equity. Yeah. Whereas performance marketing prioritizes short-term conversions and sales. And there's usually a trade-off. If you're prioritizing brand, um, you might not see return on investment as soon. And if you're prioritizing performance, your ads might be a little bit spammier because you just want people to click and buy and convert immediately. So this idea is something that I've thought about for years from my time in-house struggling with this personally um, mm-hmm. and then working with clients and seeing this dynamic and this tension between brand performance play out with different clients, seeing how some clients were very much on the performance side and then other clients were so far on the opposite side with prioritizing brand and the types of conversations that we would have internally were, um, were so different. You know, in yeah. one situation, I'm the same person, but in one situation, I would be um, the person telling the performance driven company that these ads are really spammy looking and they are eroding brand equity that yes, we are seeing a little bit better conversion with these, but they look so bad. Like we cannot do this. Right. And then, and then two days later, I'm in a meeting with a very brand driven company and they're talking about investing more into um, the packaging of the product. They're talking about flying influencers in for an event and decking it out with beautiful um, decor and, and, you know, custom, you know, this and that they're talking about making really cool illustrations and animations for social that, you know, having an artist work on these. So all these brand driven activities, and I'm the voice of, you know, 
performance in that case saying, you know, let's think about what's really going to give us the most leverage instead of just spending, spending, spending. So really seeing these ideas play out in different ways, this all happened before I published the brand versus performance marketing spectrum post uh -huh. because it took that long to really understand all the nuances of this idea in a way where I felt so strongly about it that I needed to write about it and and share this because I felt like other people could benefit from thinking about this tension in this way. And that took that took a while and it wasn't just, hey, I had this idea, I'm just gonna go publish it, you know, in a, in a um, nonchalant way. Okay, yeah, so because what's interesting is that you know, like we all get worried about about the content we put out there, right? And and I think one of the difficult things when when you want to like stand out, it's that in a way you want to stand out enough and you want to blend in enough, right? You want to fit in enough and stand out enough. You talk about in your blog about what you call spiky points of views, with which I think is a really interesting concept. Essentially, having strong opinions about things where most people feel differently or a large portion of people feel differently um, and, and really standing up for them. And how do you manage that balance, right? Between not being the person that's fighting every day on Twitter with everybody just to be a contrarian and you're actually like putting out some interesting points out there, but you're also like fitting in where you, where, where you feel comfortable and standing out where you feel comfortable. Because one of the worst ways of making content is trying to fit in too much. You go into that sea of sameness where nobody will ever see you, right? So how do you find that balance or do you feel like you have found that balance even? Yeah, definitely. So a spiky point of view for people who are new to the idea is a belief that you have, a point of view that you have that is relevant to your audience and rooted in evidence and in your expertise. So both of those are important. Yeah. You want to talk about spiky points of view where you have expertise. If you don't have expertise and it's just a random opinion that you have and happen to feel strongly about, that, that doesn't come across the same way. It doesn't carry weight and it's not as relevant for your audience. They just don't really have a reason to listen to you on this topic. So yeah. having yeah. spiky points of view really makes the most sense with areas where you have personal experience and you have expertise and knowledge and um, and a body of work that supports you being able to speak with authority on this topic. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Uh, the other element of a spiky point of view is that it's relevant for your audience and you're teaching them something that they don't already know. That really depends on which audience you're speaking with. So for some, some audiences, what you're saying could be completely obvious. And they think everyone knows this, this is boring, this is this is banal. But you take that same material to a different audience and they think this is cutting edge, edge, it's fresh, it's risky, it's edgy, right? So part of it is figuring out what's the audience that's going to find value from what you bring. And that takes a little bit of wisdom and uh, an instinct because you, you don't wanna be in a place where people don't appreciate you. You yeah. really want to find people who would find value in what it is that you're sharing. No, I agree. I think what I've found in the in the last few years about about this kind of like um, concerns when it comes to putting out content is that first of all, often you think you are not adding a lot of value, and most most of the times you are, is and people really appreciate it. Uh, it. A lot of the things that you think are obvious, they're not so obvious to everybody, and also. 
if they were known, right? Like people do appreciate when you have a nice point of view or a way of communicating that's different. Maybe nothing in this podcast is entirely new to somebody, but just the way you communicate it is either entertaining or inspiring or whatever it is for that person, right? The other one is, of course, that done is better than perfect. Like if you just question yourself, it's, you know, it's never endless. And then, and then you never just end up posting anything and you're always hiding uh, because of the fact that it could go wrong. And last but not least, I think that no matter how much, how amazing your content is, like there's always someone willing to tear it apart, right? Like, and if you let those get to you, you're just never going to put anything out there, right? Like for everything, like every most amazing movie or whatever that you look at out there, there's always a hater there. There's somebody, always somebody saying, hey, this is crap. I don't like it. So you need to grow thick skin. Just go with it and just acknowledge that it's not always going to be perfect, right? At some point, you're going to put out boring stuff or less insightful stuff. And that's totally okay. I mean, it's only human, right? And that, that also... I wanted to dig a little bit deeper in the in one of the pains of one of your pieces of content that you previously mentioned, which is communicating the value of branding to management. I think that's that's really interesting because you know, from my perspective, most CEOs, CFOs, or the people that we have to give explanations to um, have a very short-term conversion mentality. And this is not because they're narrow-minded; it's just because they also work with a sh short runway. Uh, and they need to show the best results possible in that short runway, which is usually the, the case in, in, in startup world. Um, we've lived in a performance marketing hype for the last 10, 15 years where everything needs to be measured. And I think as, as a consultant, this might even be a bit more intense, right? Like we're getting this person in, paying that person X. We expect X result from that person. Have you? How do you communicate to management the value of thinking more long-term uh, even knowingly that their short-term metrics are not going to be fantastic, right? How do you communicate the value of building a solid brand over time? The first and most important step with this is figuring out the right people to work with and the right companies to work with. I hear a lot from brand marketers who are what they call stuck in performance marketing companies, and yeah. that can be a very painful place to be. So, you know, if you if you think about if you think about worldviews, if someone really doesn't believe in brand marketing, they only believe in doing whatever it takes to convert, we will do promotions, we're gonna do discounts, we're gonna make outlandish claims and big promises that we might or might not be able to keep. So if someone believes in that, it's very hard to get them to do a 180, to turn away from those things and walk away from those things that do bring in revenue to this other brand marketing world where the promise doesn't seem that great. You're not saying you can bring more revenue faster. You're saying that somewhere down the line one day, um, you know, the return on investment might, might happen. It's, a, it's, it's hard to get people to turn 180 to go from super performance driven to super brand driven. So the, the most important um, step is to filter upfront, is to think about and understand the leadership team and the company's overarching stance on how they value topics and functions that are less measurable, that are less quantitatively measurable. So it's not just brand marketing that falls in this, it's also design. Mm -hmm. It's also customer experience. But right? you bring a really important measure. point there. Yeah, because yeah. you mentioned measurability, right? And, and, and I think in brand marketing, that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Because you have to learn to pay attention to the smaller signals that tell you that something is catching on. Right, that tell you that somebody's enjoying something. So something as small 
as a small group of people saying, hey, you should, guys should keep doing this. This is really cool. We love it. Um, it's, and when you take that over to a meeting and it's like, well, how many people said that? Well, a handful, right? But I take it as a good sign. And they'll be like, yeah, but you know, performance marketing, you can show X amount of conversions and volume and all these kind of things that, that the business needs, right? And then you're telling me that we spent X amount of money in creating this podcast and five people wrote to you after that they loved it. Right, and there's so many things that show that people liked it that get untracked, right? So many because it's always a few people that will go through the actual trouble of writing to you and say, "Hey, we loved it." That doesn't mean that many of the other hundreds of people that listened to it loved it as well. They just didn't go in their emails and reach out to you, and you have no way of measuring that they loved it. Sure, and this is also one to wrap up. Like people would say, "Yeah, but just look at for how long they listened." right? And the behavior and the way people listen to things, people will listen 10 minutes one evening, then another little bit while they're driving, then another little bit there, they'll jump off different devices, right? It's so hard to just say, oh, people are dropping off, so that's a bad sign, right? Uh, that doesn't really tell the full story. How do you deal with the challenge of communicating this, this value? I mean, you said you filter the company, but at the same time, they still want to see results, right? They still want to see, hey, this is catching on fire and low volume is always a little bit hard to convince with. It's always easier to bring bigger numbers and volume tends to be one of those numbers. Yeah. But the intensity of the customer reaction matters a lot too. So customers' eyes lighting up and how much they would miss you if you were gone, how intensely they feel about this product, how zealous they are about um, telling their friends and word of mouth and how mad they would be if you took it away from them. These are all things that you can't really measure and don't get captured in most metrics. So, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier with, um, with filtering up front, this is why it's so important to find people who, and leaders and companies who do value brand marketing. I actually don't ever work with people who um, are short-sighted and only value performance. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I, in, in my youth earlier years, I would talk until I was blue in the face, trying to convince people who didn't see the value of great design of great branding of storytelling of a great customer experience. I would talk until I was blue in the face, trying to convince them that marketing matters. And that one might move them one inch in the direction of believing it. But here's the thing, the world is a really big place. And if these people don't want to think that marketing matters or if they don't want to value design or customer experience or whatever else, that's fine by me. They can keep doing what they do. And eventually they're going to reach a cap with purely optimizing for performance. And then yep. they're going to come around. That usually happens. There are companies that I talk to who are squarely performance driven and they come to me because they think, you know, Hey, we've reached a bit of a cap and we read your brand versus performance spectrum article and realize that we could benefit from doing some things that are a little bit longer term. So I don't think that you should ever spend energy trying to convince people of something that they really don't believe. Yeah. Instead, you should work with people that already believe the value. Even then, there's still an uphill battle, right? Even then, you still do have to convince them of, um, of the worthiness of doing any particular activity, even within brand marketing. Because within brand marketing, there's still so much you can do. Do we spend our dollars on um, sponsoring a podcast? Do we work with influencers? Do we invest more in that packaging? Do yeah. we send gifts to our customers, right? Do we hire more TAs or coaches for our course? So there's an even more white glove student experience that warrants this higher price point. 
Um, right? There's all kinds of things that you can do from a brand marketing um, bucket that you still need to make a business case for why this versus that. So you're still making that argument. So, you know, even, even then um, you need to make, you need to make the business case for it, but that business case is much, it's much more effective when you have common vocabulary and common values around, you know, should we be doing this at all? Once you agree, yes, we should do brand, then it's okay, well, what do we do and why? And then building that business case. Yeah, what's interesting is that also when people turn their minds around, right, when you've capped your and you're paying the most expensive CPC because you've tried to do everything in, in paid advertising that you can and your CPC is off the roof, usually you've done that by damaging your brand a bit as well, right? By just interrupting people and being in their faces and being everywhere they go and just spamming them with display advertising in every website they visit and things like this. And it's not an easy turnaround, right? Like the other, the other thing that I wanted to, to mention is that there seems to be this growing buzz about, you know, like it was growth marketing a couple of a couple of years back. Now it's all about revenue, right? And we see these RevOps teams uh, popping and we see vendors telling us that marketing should be um, way more attributable to direct revenue, right? And you should be able to say, hey, this is how much revenue marketing is bringing in. But we know that the reality of uh, the behavior of a consumer, right? Maybe in like low commitment B2C is different, but in when you're spending a little bit more in a product or in B2B, it has so many touch points, right? They are for sure at some point influenced by the marketing of the company, by why, by why the branding looks, by what the tone of voice is, whatever it is, right? But at some point you reach out to different teams, you talk to sales, you talk to customer support. In the, in the case of B2C, there's so many, B2B, there's so many different touch points, right? And then everybody's obsessed about, okay, but who gets the glory for this deal, right? Or who gets the glory for this purchase? Is like when you advise companies, have you have had to face like recently more or not at all the question of like, so how much money is West bringing in, right? Because you do a lot of things that influence beyond what is trackable, right? And at the same time, a lot of the things that you might do as a consultant are very hard to directly attribute to you, right? Is this something that you even promise? Is this something that you even discuss? Or is this something that people know exactly what you're coming in for? It's not even a question. Yeah, that's a great question. People know exactly what I'm coming in for. And setting expectations upfront is very important. You really want to set expectations as early as possible and every step of the way. So there's no confusion as to who's responsible for what and why. Um, I think that there are some there's some functions that tend to be more performance driven and more measurable. So if you're um, doing lead gen, for example, the number of leads that you're bringing in, if you're doing um, audience growth, where were we this week versus next week, this month versus next month, those are pretty measurable things. And they're usually tactical and um, a bit more mechanical and you can measure them. So that makes sense if you can measure that, right? There are other areas where it is, it's a bit more ambiguous by nature because you're building something from scratch. So when you ask a founder who's building a new product, what is the value of pricing your product in this way or designing this pricing structure? How many people have you converted because you went with this pricing structure versus another one? It's hard to say because you, you can't test every iteration of pricing, 
right? You are doing it, but you're you're doing it in a way where you're um, you're building a business case and doing something that has not been done before in a, mm-hmm. in you know this way with your situation, and you need to look at the first principles surrounding the idea to then assert that we believe after looking at models and our situation, our assets and levers, that this is the best thing for us to do. Right. So this applies for um, the pricing of a new product. It applies for the positioning and the messaging. It applies for what the product should be in the first place, because as you're building something, you can you can make it as, as heavy or lightweight as you want, right? Let's say even if you hold the product constant as a variable, the way you talk about it, you can talk about it a dozen different ways. Same product, tons of different ways, right? Um, audience, that's another huge variable. You hold your positioning constant, you hold your price constant, you hold your product constant, you change the audience and everything shifts, right? So in situations like this where you are building something new, that's mm-hmm. fundamentally different than than when you're doing a functional task that is known, it's defined, it's measurable, and um, it's verifiable. Like that, those are just completely different buckets. So I tend to work on on um, building something new, like in that bucket, where I'm working with CEOs and founders, and we're thinking about given where the company is, given the levers and assets that you have, given what the team looks like, given the strengths of of what, what customers currently believe that you can do what makes sense for this new launch? How do we test it in a small way? How do we make the value prop sound very attractive for this type of customer? And how do we measure what they're reacting well to versus things that they don't care about? So when we do V2, we can just get rid of those things that they don't care about and double down on the things that they do care about. So it's a lot more ambiguous of a process. And that's why setting expectations up front is so important so that you can be on the same page that what we're trying to do is build something from scratch that is brand new. And therefore, here's what that's going to look like. Here's what we can expect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, setting expectations, it's it's always a tricky thing as well, because, um, you know, even, even if you put this in a document, right, even if you meet with the team and you say, hey, so this is exactly what we're going to do. This is exactly what our expectations are for this experiment project or, or whatever it is. Um, somewhere along the way, people's memories start to be very fragile, right? And and they start going like, yeah, dude, but this is not getting the traction we thought it was going to get. And you're like, well, this was a conscious decision, right? We knew what we were doing. We knew the exact kind of behavior we were going to see. But all of a sudden, it's like people see something that makes them want more, right? Or they says like, oh, but this could be better. Or this could be... And they start shifting expectations along the way. How do you make sure without like being a broken record on this, that teams stick to these, right? That that, that that notion is not missed after that initial meeting where you set those expectations. Yeah, I think it depends on, on what's evolving and shifting. If yeah. it makes sense for the client and the customer to evolve and shift, then you need to take a step back and think about how you can help accommodate that, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you can't accommodate it, then maybe it's no longer a good fit. So. I do think that that business needs evolve and you should constantly be checking in to see if, am I evolving with them? Do I want to, or is, or have we reached a point where it's a little bit of a crossroads? They're going in this direction. I'm going that direction. So that's, that's point one. The second point is that actively framing your ideas 
is something that you should be doing every single step of the way with every interaction that you have with the customer or client. So I don't send a single email sending over something that I've done without framing it in the way that I need them to see why are we doing this? Here's where we left off the last time we talked about it. Here's why it's important. And here's why we agreed that we wanted to do this. Yeah. And then I send the link to the Google doc with whatever the thing is or a deck or my ideas or whatever. I never, ever just send over thoughts or a link or whatever without that couching, without the, the preface, um, because that context shapes how people interact with whatever thing it is that you are presenting to them. So embracing that it's your responsibility to constantly frame and constantly give that context to remind people, here's where we left off. Here's what we said that we're, here's why we said we wanted to do this. And this is me giving it to you because you asked me to do this, right? Not just sending it over um, and assuming people are going to find value in whatever you just did. Because if you imagine where that person is coming from, yeah. they probably just finished a full day of back-to-back meetings, had no context, they're switching gears, right? They're task switching and you just sent them this thing. If they they receive it, they're just going to think, what is this? This looks bad or or wrong in all kinds of ways. They're going to jump straight into giving you micromanaging feedback. So if you give them that context up front, you can even share, here's the feedback that I'm looking for. I highly recommend that, right? If you're not looking for feedback, then mention that too. You can even say, this is a first draft, not looking for line edits. I'm looking for high level structural feedback on the core idea. Let's get, let's get on the same page about the core idea. And then I'll flesh out what the rest of this thing really looks like. But you, but notice how I'm actively saying, here's what I'm looking for. I'm giving this to you. I'm not just throwing it over the wall, but I'm giving it to you with clear expectations on what I want you to do with it. And that actually makes that person's life easier because they receive it and they now know what to do with it. They don't have to imagine for themselves what they should do with this thing. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at your content, I think one of the, one of the super interesting commonalities that it has is a lot of it is related to, to communication skills, right? A lot of it is related on how to say things, when to say them, the channel in which to say them and so on. I feel this is such a big issue today, especially with this lag generation of companies, right? Where you just get random brain farts on every channel, in every direction, and then you're supposed to say something. So, hey, check this out. What do you think? And this, what do you think? Is like you have to read this entire blog post that will take you an hour. Think about it for a minute, and then tell me what do you think. It's not something that you'll be like, ah, oh, I think it's cool, right? It would actually take you so much. And so many people drop the ball on this. So I would really, really advise for everybody who struggles with communication. I am definitely one of them. I tend to over talk, as you could probably see from this podcast. Um, and I could probably say things in way fewer words than I say them, but I tend to go around the bushes. So that's something I'm working on. Uh, but it's, it's been great to have you here, Wes. I think um, right now you're going to have another another commitment next. So I would like to move into the, the share resources section. Do you have anything that you would like to share with the audience besides some of your stuff that I will also mention at the end? Yeah, there's a great book that I love called On the Art of Writing Copy by uh, an author named Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Okay. And um, it's, it's more of a intense rigorous textbook than it is just a book that you flip through, but it's definitely worth getting and reading um, and and using as a reference guide. I think there's so much that falls apart between the strategy and the actual execution. 
And a lot of that is the way that you express the idea and position it and um, allow the other person to receive it and feel your intent. So copywriting, I think, is an underrated skill set for all of us as leaders, whether you're a marketer or a CEO or a founder. Um, and that's one of the favorite, my favorite books on copywriting. Super cool. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those marketers that at some point got obsessed with technology and marketing, right? And like measuring everything and algorithms and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and such a fundamental skill as copywriting, it's, it's making a massive comeback. You see all marketers talking about it because it just makes such a big difference. Um, so that's a really interesting one. I haven't read it, but uh, I'm gonna, definitely going to give it a check and share the link with the people in, watching this in YouTube. Anything else you would like to add to, to those resources that comes to mind? I'll send you a couple links. All right, cool. I, I want to also mention, I usually share books as well, but in this episode in particular, I wanted to actually share uh, your own content because I, I kind of thought you were not going to do a, a shameless plug, so I'm going to do it for you. I think the blog is, is super, super valuable to check out. One of the main things that I really appreciated was that there's a section in Wes's website where you can uh, see kind of repositories of content that she's written. So there's one about end-to-end -end marketing and another one about strategic leadership where she essentially reorganizes her own blog post into categories. It's a goldmine. It's really, really good. I would really recommend for you guys to check it out and also to subscribe to her newsletter. Um, it's been really eye-opening. I think you have an uncanny ability to put a lot of things that we all think in like really clear words, right? And, and this is why also um, you can kind of see what you're teaching in your content or what you're showing in your content being put to action by yourself in writing that content, right? And, and, and I think that's, that's super, super powerful. It, it made a really, really nice uh, impression on me. I shared it with my team. So it was, it was really, I was really happy to be able to have you here. Thank you, Wes, for, for joining me today. I'm sorry to everybody watching on YouTube about my fight with the sun in the face. You can laugh about <laughs> it later. If you're listening to the podcast, you can just come in and watch me look like an idiot in YouTube. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Love to have you. Uh, hope you have a great next, uh, a great rest of your week. Thank you so much, Nacho. Okay. Bye, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye.